believe what I'm about to preach on. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of John, chapter number 8. <clears throat> John, chapter 8, for the past two weeks, we've looked at a message <clears throat> entitled, The Savior is Greater Than the Situation. Two weeks ago, we looked at John, chapter 6, and we looked at the story where Jesus was in the region of Bethsaida, and there in Bethsaida, he fed 5,000 men plus women and children. He put the disciples on a boat across the Sea of Galilee, told them to go over to Capernaum. Jesus on one side taught us that he is in control of life bread, but on the other side he taught us that he is the bread of life. Last Sunday we came with the Savior is bigger than the situation. We looked at part two, and we looked at the same story, but we went to Matthew chapter 14 where we have the same story about the disciples, and we looked at part two was titled um, Learning How to Walk on Water. Well, I want to continue this morning we looked last week, we looked at three different types of storms as the disciples were out there in storms. And one of the types of the storms that we looked at last week was called the storm of consequences. You know, storms, trials, situations that we bring on ourselves. This morning as we continue on the subject of the Savior is bigger than the situation. I want to look at part number three, grace. Is greater than sin. Oh, thank you, Jesus. This woman is in a situation here in John chapter 8. This is a storm of consequences. It is my prayer that God would give each of us something in this place this morning. It is my prayer that right here this morning in this building that God will do half for you what he's done for me this week. While studying this passage. John chapter 8 verse number 1. Jesus went into the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning came again into the temple. And all the people came unto him. And he sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. When they had set her in the midst. They said unto unto him. Master. This woman was taken in adultery. In the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us. That such should be stoned. What sayest thou? This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down with his finger, wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted himself up and he said unto him, He that is without sin among you, let him cast a stone. Let him first cast a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Father God, thank you so much for your precious holy book, God. Thank you for this blessed word, God. Thank you for this story that you've included here for our benefit, God. I pray this morning when you move among the hearts of your people, God, everybody in this place stands in need of something different, God. Everybody in here has a different situation, a different circumstance, a different problem, a different storm, a different demon whispering in their ear, God. Everybody here brought in something. And I know that the sweet Holy Spirit can take this one message 
and divide it a few hundred times and spread it out among your people, God. I pray you do something special in this place on this day, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's a book called The Massacre at Fall Creek. It's written by a woman named Jessamine West. The story is written about a, a, a thing that happened. It was an event. It's a true story. It happened between Fall Creek, Indiana and Deer Lick Creek, Indiana. And the story talks about this group of Seneca Indians. It was two families of Seneca Indians that had gathered on the piece of land in between the Deer Lick Creek and the Fall Creek. And they were there for the purpose of trapping animals for their pelts, for their furs or their skins, whatever you want to call them. Something that would have been very valuable in that day, seeing as how this took place on March 22nd of 1824. A group of seven white men heard about the Indians being camped there. And so they devised a plan to kill the Indians and to steal the pelts. They carried out their act. One of the Indians escaped. The other nine were brutally murdered. Until that time, in the mind of many, it was not considered to be a crime to kill an Indian because of the turmoil and the situation taking place here in the country. So the state set out to arrest these seven men and to try them for murder. One of the men escaped and got away. The other six men were arrested. Two of the men took a plea bargain. They became state witnesses in order to avoid execution. The other four men were tried. They were found guilty. They were sentenced to death by hanging. One of the four men that was convicted was an 18-year-old boy. 19 years old by the time the convictions came around, but an 18-year-old boy, one of the ones. Of the other three men, one of them was his father, and one of them was his uncle. They were all sentenced to die by hanging. The day of the execution was a big day. It's the first time that anybody had ever been executed for killing an Indian. First time white people had ever been on trial for killing an Indian. So you had a huge multitude of people turned out for the event. Both white men and Indians were all around. So here you have these four men on the block, nooses around their necks, standing on their pedestals, soon to be hanged. All four men were tried. <laughs> all four were guilty. <laughs> all four men deserved to die. The executioner came by and he kicked the stool out from under the first one. Dead. He came to the 18-year-old boy's father and kicked it out. Dead. Came to the 18-year-old boy's uncle and they kicked it out. Dead. When out of nowhere, the governor of the state stepped up and pardoned the fourth man of all his crimes. That's what Jesus did for you. We stood there guilty and condemned with every reason to die. Every one of the four men was guilty. The 18-year-old boy was of the age of accountability, yet he was pardoned without a cause. That is exactly what the blood of Jesus does for the child of God. Can you imagine being convicted of a crime that you know you did? Being sentenced to die? Watch your father Watch your uncle, 
watch the other member of the party be executed and know that you deserve the same. But at the last possible minute, somebody shows up out of nowhere and pardons the guilt and saves the life. That's the story that we have this morning in our text. This woman is guilty. She has been caught in the very act of adultery. There is no doubt as to her guilt or to her innocence. She is guilty as charged. The mob's already tried her. They don't need any jury. They don't need anybody else around. They've already determined for themselves. They caught her in the very act. So they already know that according to the law, this woman is to be stoned to death. Everybody is gathered around her. It's amazing how God gives people songs that go with what you're about to preach. Everybody's picked up their stones. Everybody's ready to stone this woman. They have stones in hand. She is moments away from this brutal, painful death. Can you imagine the relief that she had to have felt? The joy that she had to have felt inside when for no reason at all other than he loved her. Jesus said, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Our text there says that this woman's caught in the very act of adultery. Now, adultery, of course, is a very vile sin, a very wicked sin. But it is no more vile than any other sin that you can commit. Some of those who are so good, as the song talked about, some of those of you who are so good at casting stones at those who have done things that you've not yet done, You'd be better off spending some time dusting off the skeletons in your own closets instead of gathering up your stones to throw at somebody else. James says in chapter 2, verse 10, Whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point is guilty of all. For he that said, Do not commit adultery, said also, Do not kill. Now, if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. That means if you've broken one law, then you've broken them all. You're guilty of them all. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So if we have all sinned, and we have, just in case any of you are questioning that, then we're all guilty of adultery or the equivalent thereof. You can say, well, I've not committed that sin. You might not, but you've committed yours. You've committed one that is equally as vile in the eyes of God. If you say, I haven't committed any of those sins, then you just did because you're a liar. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth's not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word's not in us. The Bible is very clear that we're all guilty. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says in verse 9, Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor murderers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And then one of my favorite words, and such were. I like that word, were. And such were some of you, but you're washed. The reason it says such were some of you is because everybody that read this hadn't been saved. But for the ones of you that are, you've been washed. But you're sanctified. <laughs> I'm going to jump off this thing before I get done. 
but you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. We were standing on a gallows, rope around our neck. The man's just about to kick the chair out from under our, out from under our feet when Jesus steps in out of nowhere and says, Forgiven. We have no right to step down off of the gallows and cheer for someone else to be condemned. Here in our text, we have this woman's accusers. They've called her, the Bible says, in the very act. And they, in their haste to execute her, they've drugged this woman out into the streets. They didn't give her time to get properly dressed. They brought her out half naked because they didn't only want to kill her, but they wanted to humiliate her while she was still alive. So they drag her out in the street, and according to the law, we have the law. According to the law, she deserves to die. It's written in God's law. In the Mosaic law, they have it. Everything says she deserves to die. So they snatch her out, and they bring her in, and they cast her down, and they put her down right before Jesus, and they say, this woman is to be stoned. There's only one little problem here in the text this morning. Adultery is not a one-person act. Where is the man? Because they said they want to keep the law, right? We're going to keep the law. We're going to keep according to the law. Well, the law, according to Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, says, And the man that committeth adultery with another man's wife, even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Where's the man? The book of Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22, If a man be found lying with a woman married to an husband, then they shall both of them die, both the man that lay with the woman and the woman. But here in our text, I, I see the woman accused, but where's the man? Why does she wear the scarlet letter? Why do they bring her out and make sure that she bears her reproach? She's the whore in all this matter. Sorry, but that's just the truth of what they're casting her out there to be. She's the one worthy of death. Where's the man? Well, I'll tell you what I'm thinking. I'm thinking he's probably a friend of theirs. They don't want to condemn one of their buddies, you know. They want to stone one of our friends. Better yet, I'm thinking he might have been somebody well-known in the community. He might have had some clout. He might have had a little pull on his side. Even better yet, I'm thinking he probably might have been a man who had some money. He might have been a man who had some wealth. He might have been a man who made some generous contributions into the temple, which would have only padded the Pharisees' pockets, which they wouldn't have gotten if they condemned the man. If the situation is going to be brought out into the open, and you want to know what Jesus thinks about the law, and you're going to put the law on trial, why isn't the man there with the woman? She didn't do it by herself. She didn't get caught in the act by herself so in their efforts to humiliate this woman and to discredit Jesus they brought her to the best possible place they brought her to the very one who no matter what she had done has the ability to teach her that your savior is bigger than your situation the Pharisees the Pharisees want to convict this woman, but they're not as interested in convicting this woman as they are in catching Jesus in a trap. See, if Jesus lets this woman go, he is in direct violation of the Mosaic law that clearly says they both are to be stoned. 
But if he gives them permission to stone her, then he loses his own testimony as being a friend of sinners. Can I just pause for a minute and tell you that all the Pharisees didn't die out the last day the Bible was completed in its writing? All the Pharisees didn't die out in the church age. She, she talked about the same story, but, but she sang a song talking more about modern day time. There's a lot of Pharisees got out of bed this morning. There's a lot of Pharisees took a shower this morning, ate some breakfast, drank some coffee this morning. There's a lot of Pharisees got in their car, and just like they did every Sunday, they went to church today so they could get some new ammunition, cast some new stones, spread some more garbage, sow some more discord among the brothers. All I'm telling you is that the Pharisees are still alive and well today. They're really good at pointing out other people's problems, and they're good at pointing out other people's sins. They're good at casting stones. They're good at judging other people's fruits, always tearing down other people. Jesus said, why don't you worry about that two-by-four hung up in your own eye and leave that little speck of sawdust alone in your neighbor's eye? When you get the beam out of your own eye, then you might see clearly to remove the moat from your brother's eye. Why don't we spend all of our time on an altar before God getting rid of our own sins? Before we start casting rocks at all of our neighbors, here in our text, here in our text, notice how Jesus responds to their argument. The Bible says he stoops down and he begins writing in the dirt. It's like he didn't even hear them. He just ignores what they said. He doesn't respond to them. Now, for centuries, scholars and theologians have tried to determine what did Jesus write. The Bible says he stooped down and began to writing, and, and, and they, they were all looking on. And even right here in this very spot, we portray it in our Easter play, he's alive. And the Pharisees are gathered around, and Jesus, Matthew Bishop, wherever he's at, playing Jesus is right here in the park. And Greg brings up the adulterous woman, and they throw her down right here, and we play out this very part. And we're trying to look and see what he's written, and we act as though we're offended, and maybe he's writing about us, and then we go off angry because Jesus didn't do it our way. But ever since the story was written, people have been trying to determine what did Jesus write? <clears throat> well, this morning, after much study, I'm going to share that with you. I'm going to give you the absolute biblical facts as to what Jesus wrote on the ground that day. You ready for it? We don't have no idea. Because if the Bible don't tell you, you can't do nothing but make it up. <laughs> so what I want to do this morning, I want to take a minute and I want to look at some of the things that Jesus might have written on that day. I want to look at what he might have written there in the dirt when he stooped down. In order to help you understand that, before I do, I want to give you a, a quick Bible lesson. In theology, one of the branches of study is called hermeneutics. It's a Bible course that we have to take. And hermeneutics is simply biblical interpretation. You can't have homiletics unless you have proper hermeneutics. So hermeneutics is simply uncovering the text, breaking it down, and looking to see what is in there. One of the principles of hermeneutics, those of you that were here four years ago, roughly four years ago, you may remember <coughs> I did a study through the numbers of the Bible. Y'all remember we did the little cards. It's got all the different numbers and what they mean. And most of you probably have one of the little laminated cards. But when we were doing that, I, I introduced a principle to you that honestly is nothing more than like a principle of hermeneutics. It's simply called the principle of first mention. 
And what it means is the first time you find something in the Scripture, the first time you find something in the Word of God, when you find it for the first time, whatever it means then is what it will mean throughout the entire Word of God. That means God didn't change His mind between Genesis and Revelation. He didn't say something one time and say something different another time. The principle of first mention means that however you find it, that's how God intended it. That's how God means it. And if that's how, man, how God means it, then that's how God says it throughout the Bible. Amen? Now, with that being said, let me go back to the story of what Jesus might have written in the dirt that day. He might have written the Ten Commandments. Because the Ten Commandments not only says thou shalt not commit adultery, but he might have looked at one of them when he said thou shalt not covet. He might have looked up at one of them when he said thou shalt not steal. Or he might have written something like Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 13 that says, All that forsake thee shall be ashamed, and they that depart from me shall be written in the earth, because they have forsaken the Lord. He might have written in the dirt the same thing that he wrote on the wall in Belshazzar's palace. Y'all remember Belshazzar's palace? Belshazzar's having this, basically, it turns into a drunken orgy, if you will. You've got men and women and all sorts of act going on, and everybody's drunk. And within his temple, he had the golden vessels that had been brought from the house of the Lord. Back when the house of the Lord was destroyed and burned down, and they brought the vessels of gold and silver, and he had them there. And in his drunken feast, trying to show off to all of his friends, he had them go get the vessels that were brought from the house of the Lord. And he and his friends, in their drunken state, began to drink wine. From the golden vessels that came from the temple. And God's finger shows up right on the wall, many, many tekel. He might have written the same thing that he did in that day. I wrote the interpretation. The interpretation says that your kingdom is divided. You've been weighed in the balance and you've been found wanting. He might have been writing that for the Pharisees to look down and say, you've been brought before the judge. You've been weighed in the balance. You've been put on trial, and you've been found guilty as charged. But then maybe, maybe he didn't write anything at all out of the Old Testament. He might have written down the names of some of the women they'd been with. Mm-mm. He might have looked at one of them and wrote down the date of the last time you went down to the red light district. He might have even looked at one of them and wrote down the last time you were at her house. For all those sin inspectors, he might have just written down their own sins. But if we know Jesus like we think we know Jesus, and we know some things about Jesus. We might could come up with something else that he just might have written that day. Because it's the one thing that would have infuriated the Pharisees more than anything else he could have done. And at the same time, it would have still held true to his name. He might have written down her sin. He might have written down that she was caught in the act. He might have written down adultery and even the names of the others involved and the date and the time and that she was convicted and that she was found. But then over the top of all of it, he might have written, forgiven. 
Pharisees had answers for everything. They had no answers for that. I wonder what he might have written that day. See, he might have written forgiven because Jesus doesn't see you for who you are. He sees you for what grace makes you. You and I in here this morning, we come in here as children of God. But we're all sinners saved by grace. Can I tell you this morning, you can deny it if you want to, but this is a simple fact. It's the Holy Spirit of God leading and keeping you to hold you where you are. If God took his hand off us, every one of us in this place would go back to doing again the things that we said we would never do again. Too many times, too many Christians run from God. I don't know how many of you know Kyle Eidelman. Kyle is a pastor of a church out in Louisville. He's offered authored three or four books. You may have read one. He's, he wrote a book called I'm Not a Fan. You may have read that one. But Kyle Eidelman said this. He said, the worst mistake you can make is to spend your time trying to outrun God because you think he's chasing you to collect what you owe but cannot pay when he's really chasing you to give you what you cannot buy. Jesus doesn't see you for what you are. He sees you for what grace can make you. For those of you who got that, the reason you got that is because you know how good grace is. For those sin inspectors, and I know there's none in here, so I'll just talk to the television camera over there for a minute. <clears throat> for you um, sin inspectors that are so good at finding everybody else's fault, and all, all you can do is point out everybody else's sins and cast stones at everybody else. As long as you think you ain't all that bad, grace ain't ever going to be all that good. When you realize how wicked and how vile a sinner you are, you'll realize how amazing grace really is. When you realize that you were backed up to a cross, Guilty of your sin. You deserve to be on that cross. That wasn't Jesus' cross. That was yours. That was mine. And when you realize that you're backed up to that cross and they're just about to drive the nails through your hands, they're, they're just about to crucify you because you are guilty of your crime. And just as they're about to put the nails in your hands, Jesus steps up out of nowhere. And you know on the cross, there's a plaque right up above the head that has the sin written on the plaque. This is what they're condemned of. This is what they did. This is why we're crucifying them. This is why they deserve to die. And just as they were about to drive the nails in your hand, Jesus stepped up with his own blood and on your plaque wrote, Forgiven. Because grace. Greater than sin. God's not looking for you this morning to collect what you owe. He's looking for you to give you what you cannot buy. He's not looking for you to get anything from you. He's looking for you to get something to you. He's looking for you to get some grace to you. He's looking for you to get some mercy to you. He's looking for you to get some forgiveness to you. Here in our text. After the Pharisees had left the scene, Jesus looks up at this woman. 
It says, when he lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. He said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. You can be as holy and as righteous in this place as you want to be and cast all the stones you want, but there ain't a person in this room that you didn't commit enough sins last week that God could send you to hell this morning and be right in doing so. It's just how we are. I don't know what Jesus wrote that day, but I know it was enough to make the Pharisees go home. I know it was enough to make them tuck their tails and run. But you look at what the Lord did to the Pharisees, the ones who were making the accusations, the ones who were ready to cast the stones, he ignored them. I don't know about you, but I don't want God to ignore me. But he also, whatever he did right there, exposed them. And I'm pretty sure I ain't the only one in this place this morning don't want to be exposed. <laughs> that song says something about dropping some stones, that'll be there ought to be the noise of some stones dropping in the house this morning. Look right here at the text for me, and I'm done. What we have here is this convicted sinner in this woman. The first thing Jesus does with the woman is he faced her. The Bible says he stood up and he faced her. He looked at the woman. You can run as long as you want to, but eventually it's going to come down to you and him. Eventually, you're going to have to face him. And when you face him, you're going to have to face yourself. Because when you see God in all of his glory, that's when we'll see ourselves in all of our mess. But look what he does next. He faced her, and then he forgave her. Woman, where are those thine accusers? This woman is a vile sinner. This woman was just caught in the act of adultery. This woman is condemned to death by the Old Testament law. She has been brought to Jesus and put right here on the ground to be stoned to death. And Jesus refers to her by the same name that he referred to his own mother. Mm -hmm. We talked about it last week, John chapter 2, the first recorded miracle of the Lord Jesus Christ at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. The Bible says they ran out of wine. He said, bring me all the pots, bring not a few. They brought them, were filled with water. When, when Mary came to Jesus and told me, said, hey, they're, they're out of wine. He said, woman, what have I to do with thee? I want you to understand, that's not a slanderous no account like some people call their wise old ladies. I wish he'd bust you in the mouth when you say that. <laughs> so I wouldn't have to. It's not a term of disrespect. Like, like today, to, to just woman would, would be kind of short, would be kind of rude. Woman, but no, if you look at it, it's, it's more of like a princess. This is a beautiful woman. This is someone in which I have high regards to. He says, I love you to this woman the same way he said, I love you. To his own mother. The only one qualified in that scene, the only one that was qualified to stone her, refused to do it. While all those around that weren't qualified were ready to stone her. Jesus faced her. And he forgave her. And then he freed her. I want you to see something right here in the text. I want you to understand something. 
Jesus didn't try to make her feel better about herself by diminishing the seriousness of her sin. Being caught in adultery is a very serious sin. Jesus didn't try to convince her that she wasn't all that bad. Because as long as you don't think you're all that bad, grace ain't going to be all that good. But when you know that you should have been on that cross, and Jesus stamped your plate forgiven, you might start having some understanding of how truly amazing grace really is. Don't wait until you're brought face-to-face with your mess. Don't wait until you're brought face-to-face with Jesus Christ for all your mess to surface up. Go ahead. Go ahead this morning. Hand your situations to him this morning. Go ahead and bring all your situations because your Savior is greater than your situation. Go ahead and put all your sin on the table this morning. Don't think you're hiding it. She talked about them things being in a vault, and God had the key to the vault. You can't hide your sins from God. He already knows them all, so why do you want to wait until you stand there to face him and see him in all of his glory before you realize how wicked you are? Can't you see from the text how much God loves you? No different than this woman. She was brought to him in the vilest, most wicked condition that she could have possibly been called in at that time. And all he said was, I love you this much. He said, my grace is greater than all your sin. Could I have you stand this morning? It might even be a good one, Tim. If you want to get on the piano, there's a song. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all my sin. Go ahead and bring your situations to him this morning. It don't have to be a sin. It can be any situation. Whatever you're dealing with in your life, whatever's going on in your life, go ahead and bring it to him this morning. Jesus looked and he said, Woman, where are thine accusers where'd the men go that wanted to stone you see it doesn't matter are you listening it doesn't matter what those around you think of you this morning what matters is what does Jesus the son of the living God think of you this morning and I can tell you what he thinks about you this morning he thinks I love you so much that I became flesh and died on Calvary's cross just for you I love you so much that I could take your vilest, most wicked sin and I could stamp it forgiven. That's what the Son of God thinks about you. He thinks I love you. I love you beyond your faults. I love you beyond your failures. I love you at your absolute worst. I didn't love you after you got saved. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's what God thinks about us. Let me ask you this morning, if you could, while you're praying. If there's anybody in the house this morning, you've never trusted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Listen, if you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're on your way to hell. And there ain't nothing can change that but the name of Jesus. The Bible says there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby ye must be saved. There is no other way. It's Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And if you've not trusted Christ, then you're on your way to hell, according to the Word of God. Nothing else can get you there. Nothing else can get you stamped forgiven. Nothing else can forgive you of your sins. Nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse you from all unrighteousness. 
can write your name in the Lamb's book of life. Nothing but the blood of Jesus can save you from hell. Nothing but the blood of Jesus can get you into heaven. There is nothing else. Have you trusted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? If you haven't, you can do that this morning. You can do that this morning. I don't have a magic prayer, but I can help you this morning. Are you willing to say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner? Because the first thing you got to do is confess your sin. You can't get saved until you realize you're lost. You can't be forgiven of your sins until you've confessed your sins. First thing you got to do is say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. And then ask him, Lord, I'm asking you to come into my heart. I'm asking you to forgive me of all of my sins. I'm asking you to write my name in the Lamb's Book of Life. I'm asking you to make me a child of God. In Jesus' name. Say a prayer like that. It's the blood of Jesus that saves you. It's you surrendering your heart to Him. One more time while people are praying. If I could have every head bowed, every eye closed. Anybody in this place this morning that said, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I've asked you to come into my heart, forgive me of my sins, and save my soul. If you've said that prayer this morning, you've trusted Christ right where you're at. Nobody looking around, nobody will come to you. I want to pray with you. I want to pray for you. Will you hold your hand up high right where you're at? Hold your hand up. I see those two hands. Hold them up high right where you're at. Keep holding them up. Let me look around the building. Anybody else anywhere around the building? Thank you, Lord Jesus, for two hands. You can put them down now. Thank you for the blood of Jesus that still saves lost sinners. But can I tell you something else this morning? Thank you for the blood of Jesus that still washes away the sins of the saints. That still washes away the stains of the impure. That still washes away the mistakes of those who have trusted Christ as their personal Lord and Savior and continue to make mistakes. Continue to commit sin. Continue to think things that we shouldn't ought to think. Continue to say things that we shouldn't ought to say. Continue to look at things that we shouldn't ought to look at. Do things that we shouldn't ought to do. God, help us this morning. Help us this morning to not be Pharisees. We don't want to be a church full of Pharisees. We want to be a church full of people that understand if it wasn't for the amazing grace of God, every one of us would be standing in hell together right now. We want to be a church that understands there's people out there lost and dying and on their way to hell, and we have the answer to their problem. Their answer is Jesus Christ, and God has given us that answer to go out and share to the world. We want to be a church that God can use, not a church that casts stones, not a church that brings the condemned before Jesus, but the one that brings the lost before Jesus and said, Lord, here's one that wants to be saved, not here's one that I want to stone. God, help us be that kind of church. Help us be a church that loves people. Help us be a church that understands our own wickedness and our own failures. 